As you know, we are celebrating our Lord's resurrection this morning as we gather together. I just want to thank the music team for leading us this morning in worship, especially thanking Sam and and his uh, leadership that way, and, and also just a special, special thanks for Emily and the talent that the Lord has given her to worship Him in that way, and I just love, I love hearing her sing, and because and, I know that it's from her heart, it's not a performance, it's, a, it's from her heart as she sings, and I just love when she belts it out, it's amazing that in our little church we have such great and amazing talent uh, for we're singing and playing the piano and guitar and leading, so thankful for that. And Justin leading us on Friday night, just a wonderful time on Friday night. If you were unable to be there, you missed a wonderful service as uh, Keith brought us the word on, uh, and John the, from, from John the last, on Friday night, so thankful for his, for his um, faithfulness in doing so. And so, so just thankful for all of the Lord's saints who have just uh, come together, and, and this church is such an amazing place, and I'm so thankful for it. So, I can't overstate the, the importance this morning of the resurrection uh, of the Lord Jesus to the gospel. Truly, the fact that our Lord rose from the dead, He defeated death, gives us great confidence no matter our difficulties. Martin Luther, he understood this great truth. One moment, one time in a moment of great peril and fear, he was tracing with his fingers, he lives, he lives. He, he did that in, in Latin. You see, Martin Luther understood that our Lord's resurrection is the glue that holds Christianity together. Now, the Apostle Paul recognized this truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as well. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, Paul told the Corinthian church, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Just a few verses later, he, he warned them, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal had the following quote, there is no accounting for the rise of Christianity without weighing the revolutionary effect on those nobodies of what they called the resurrection. Their encounter with the one whom they embraced as the risen Lord whom they first knew as the itinerant Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on an, an agonizing and shameful death on a cross outside of Jerusalem. You see, end quote, you see that that is the centerpiece. Even the Wall Street Journal understands the resurrection truly is the centerpiece of Christianity in the sense of what gives it its power. The resurrection of our Lord is critical to our faith because if Christ was not raised from the dead, the gospel would be rendered useless because we cannot have a dead Savior. A dead Savior cannot save anyone. Our faith would be worthless because the great object of our faith would be dead and bound by the grave. Christianity would be a lie, and we would all be fools. And, by the way, we would all still be enslaved in our sin. You see, Jesus' resurrection is supremely important to the gospel and to the Christian faith. And if you are a believer, it is incredibly important to you because it is, it is your only hope. In the words of John MacArthur, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest 
single greatest event in the history of the world. It is so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian, end quote. John Calvin has said, although we have complete salvation through his death because we are reconciled to God by it, it is by his resurrection and not his death that we are said to be born to a living hope, 1 Peter 1.3, end quote. If you are an unbeliever, it is incredibly important to you. The resurrection is incredibly important to you because it is your only hope to be saved from your wickedness. And your haste to hate Christ, you may argue against the resurrection and say that He cannot live. He cannot live. But you do so at your peril. If He does not live, then you likewise will perish. But here's the problem. It's not annihilationism. It's not, you're going to just go away. You're going, to be, you're going to be raised again, but it'll be to face His wrath forever. So, the question is, how can we be so assured of the resurrection? How can we know that Christ actually rose from the dead? Well, we can know through the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' disciples recorded in God-breathed Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, meaning that it is the very breath of God that has breathed out the Word of God. 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There is no, church, there is no denying the supernatural nature of the resurrection. There is no natural means to explain the resurrection. Some try to offer theories to to deny the supernatural. Some people who even say they're Christians deny the supernatural. They try to say things like Jesus didn't really die on the cross, yet every excuse falls short because of the witness of the disciples who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. Have you ever sat in a busy place such as a mall or a coffee shop and just watch the people go by? Their mannerisms and their interactions can tell you a lot about them without even knowing them. Well, in John 20, verses 1-18, through 18, which was read earlier by Sebastian, John, the Apostle John, gives us the opportunity to study the actions and interactions of the disciples as they encountered the supernatural. This morning, John will give us an eyewitness view from the tomb. We will see the reactions of Jesus' closest companions as they met with the truth that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the grave. I want you to see that they were ordinary people who had encountered a a great tragedy. They They were undergoing a great tragedy. They had lost their friend. They had lost their Lord. But I want you to recognize that they were acting in very ordinary ways as they processed the supernatural occurrence of the resurrection. And in doing so, we will see human reaction from almost every conceivable angle. We will witness the fear of guards who pass out at seeing the angel, an angel of the Lord, not the angel, an angel of the Lord. We will feel something of the deep despair of the loss of one so dear to them. We will share... Uh, a sense of the confusion of the disciples when they, had, they found that the body of Jesus was missing. 
And we'll join in the elation of seeing Jesus for the first time in his glorified body. The resurrection changed the disciples in profound ways. It, it truly transformed them. In the words of John Stott, perhaps the transformation of the, the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. End quote. Well, that transformation began that morning in seed form at that empty tomb when they witnessed their, the risen Lord, our risen Savior. Beloved, that's what makes Resurrection Morning so exciting. We can honestly say with confidence, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Come, let's see what a morning it truly was. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning and praise You for Your goodness to us. May You be with us this morning. Lord, we know that You are risen. You are risen indeed. We can serve You in confidence, knowing that You are a Savior, our Savior, and that You are alive and well today and have risen in power, in the power of the resurrection, and are sitting at the right hand of the Father even today. In Christ's name, amen. This resurrection morning, John, we're going to see that John vividly shows us the supernatural qualities of Jesus' resurrection through the natural reactions of His disciples. And so as we review in John 20, as we, as we view, that is, the events through the disciples' eyes, ask yourself, how would I respond? How would I respond? Would I be confused? Would I be disconcerted? Would I be confident? Would I be despairing? Would I be captivated? Or would I be devoted? Or a combination thereof? As we view the events through the disciples' eyes, ask yourself, who would you be? Would you be first confounded? Let me set the scene for us. Jesus had entered Jerusalem on Monday. It was the culmination and the end of a journey that had begun several months before in Caesarea Philippi. At that at that time, Jesus had set His face to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die on a Roman cross. It was, it was the Father's will that He did, did so. Now, when He entered the, the city uh, earlier in the week, He was given a hero's welcome. The people thought He had come to conquer the Romans and deliver them from bondage. And as, but as the week went on, we find that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of His followers. He was arrested and He stood trial. Now, as we heard Keith give uh, this on Friday night, uh, the trials were a complete mockery. So Jesus was sentenced to die on a Roman cross, even though Pilate didn't want to hand him over. Jesus, we can say very clearly in the words of the Apostle Peter, Jesus had been delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But that didn't alleviate their guilt because they nailed him to a cross. He was nailed to the cross by the hands of lawless men who put him to death. He would be nailed to a Roman cross. He would be put to death. The crucifixion was carried out on Friday and, and by late that day, just before the Jewish Sabbath began, Jesus was, in fact, laid in the tomb. Now in Matthew 27, verses 57-60, through 60, we find that Joseph of Arimathea had become a disciple of Jesus, who had become a disciple of Jesus, requested the body from Pilate. He wrapped the body in a clean linen cloth and laid his body in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock. The text tells us that he had, 
he had rolled a, or had a, a large stone rolled against the entrance and left the body there until the Sabbath was complete. Matthew also tells us that on the next day, that on the next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said to him, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, that the deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, order for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Now in God's sovereignty, Pilate told them to set their guards on the grave. He said, go and, 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 and seal it, or go and, and make it as secure as you know how. So the grave was even sealed, sealed to ensure that no one would tamper with it. They wanted, they wanted to prevent a hoax, but God's purpose was to use their unbelief as further proof in the reality of the resurrection. In the words of John MacArthur, even Jesus' enemies helped assure that in order for his resurrection to be genuine, he would have to be supernaturally raised. Despite their later efforts to spread the rumor that the disciples did indeed steal the body of Jesus, they knew that they themselves had made that impossible, in quotes. The Jewish leaders had conspired with the Romans to find him guilty and to send him to death. Now they were conspiring to cover it all up and make it all go away. But God had other plans. God had planned all of those things, but he planned also to raise, or for Christ to be raised from the dead. And he would use even their plans, their, their, their plans for his glory. As we saw last week, every step of the way, every moment of Jesus' life was predetermined by the will of the Father all the way to His death on the cross. Even their dirty dealings with Pilate on Saturday, the day after the death of Jesus, was predetermined by God. And after the events, these events, the scene of this great drama picks up at the tomb where Jesus had been laid. Now I want you to imagine, just for a moment, how confounded or confused that Jesus' disciples must have been. They were hurt, and they were confused as to what even happened as they observed the Sabbath. You see, their Lord and their friend had been tried and brutally killed. He, is, he was now lying in the tomb. What would life be like going forward? That must have been foremost in their thoughts. Let's pick up in our text in John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to, early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had already been taken away, or already taken away from the tomb. The Apostle John picks up on Sunday morning after the Sabbath had ended at sundown on, on Saturday. Yet we know from Luke's Gospel that the activity actually had begun the night before, just after the Sabbath ended. The women purchased and, and prepared spices for the body of Christ, and, and they brought them, and they prepared them, and, and readied them. Undoubtedly, they had spent their evening and probably late into the night uh, for the early morning activities at the, at the tomb. And according to the text, uh, according to Mark 16:2, they, they arrived at the tomb in the early morning hours. They came when the sun had risen. Now, John tells us that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb first. While Mark says, he talks about the, the, the women coming together. 
Probably what happened is, is that Mary got up early, Mary Magdalene that is, got up early and went to the tomb a little earlier than the other women, though, though Matthew says and Mark says she was there with the other Mary. All the gospel writers record her presence there. Therefore, Mary Magdalene figures prominently in the accounts. But in his accounting, Matthew says there was a great earthquake and a stone, the stone had been rolled away from the door of the tomb. Mark tells us that the women were discussing who were dis- discussing the women were discussing on the way who would roll the stone away for them. Mark also tells us that that stone was extremely large. It was much too large for the women to roll it away without help. Matthew says that an angel of the Lord rolled it away. So we must be clear that the stone was not rolled away by Jesus and it was not rolled away by the women. It was rolled away by an angel. You see, Jesus didn't need that and the women couldn't have done it. Jesus could pass through walls with His glorified body. We see that later in John 20, verse 26. So He didn't need for the stone to be rolled away. So why was it rolled away? It was rolled away so that the disciples could see inside. Now John tells us, says that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, and, and Mark clearly says that the women came when the sun had risen. But any, any seeming contradiction is solved by understanding that Mary went there first. Then the, the other Mary must have joined her soon after. So, so we have Mark that says they were there together. And we have John that gives more detail that says Mary Magdalene came first. No contradiction. During all this, angels appeared to the women and guards saw them. We know that from Matthew 28, 4. Guards saw them and became like dead men. They literally passed out cold. Now just imagine in your mind's eye, this is what I want you to do this morning, just imagine in your mind's eye the chaos that surrounded the situation. There were people coming and going. Mary Magdalene uh, had come to the tomb just before the other Mary. The guards passed out at the sight of the Lord's angel. Angels, and, and as you, but as we continue this account, I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice that Scripture shows us normal human reactions to these supernatural events. With that, I want you to look back at John 20, verse 1. Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Let us, let's get to know Mary Magdalene. She's a woman of many misconceptions. In his blasphemous book, The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown paints Mary as the secret wife of Jesus. He says that she bore his descendants who later immigrated to the south of France. And there, these are lies that are meant to cast doubt on the true person of Christ and on Mary himself, herself. And Luke tells us that Mary, the, the, the truth of the Word of God in Luke tells us that Mary had been delivered from seven demons. She lived a, a, a horrific life imprisoned by the demons, yet Jesus had delivered her from not only the bondage to these demons, but uh, bondage to her sin. And because of what Jesus had done for her, Mary was incredibly loyal to Him. And we know that she was there at the cross. She was right there up to the bitter end as Jesus died. We know that from John 19. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
We also find in Mark 15, 47 that Mary Magdalene, that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was Joseph was looking on to see where he had been laid. I mean, so she's there even when he's being laid in the grave. She knew where the body was taken. She she must have told the other the other disciples. Luke tells us she was there on Saturday night, lovingly preparing the spices. That's Luke 23. As you can see by her responses to his, to, her, to his death, to the Lord's death, Mary's devotion to Jesus was absolutely clear. She remained with Jesus to the bitter end. And she was there early on Sunday morning. Yet her actions don't indicate that she expected anything like His resurrection, even though He had said it. Her actions show her loyalty and devotion. She was, his, she was the constant in that darkest hour. Now I want you to imagine just for, the, for a moment the overwhelming grief that Mary must have felt as she walked up to that tomb. You know, you've heard the, the expression, I'm sure you've heard the expression that it's the darkest before the dawn. Well, actually, that's scientifically untrue. The brightness of the, light, the night sky depends on the moon's appearance. So, so it's not true, it's not a truism, if you will, that it's the darkest before the dawn. But I believe that this phrase comes from this scene as Mary approaches the tomb. That it was incredibly dark. Daylight had not broken yet. That Mary was weighed down by her grief. And as she looked up, she sees that the stone had been rolled away. It had already been taken away from the tomb. You see, God's timing is always perfect. He allowed Mary to go through this terribly trying time. Uh, unimaginable grief. According to His sovereign will, she experienced this time of, of this deep Grief and sadness, and, and God yet God is perfect in His timing and in His purposes. I hope you get a sense of her deep grief as she's arriving at the tomb. She thought her Lord was gone forever. Death had claimed another victim, and, and this victim was her Lord. She couldn't have understood what was going to happen next. Look at your text in verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. You see, Mary had walked to the tomb in this overwhelming grief. Then she experienced the shock of her life. At this point, Mary was confused. She was confounded. She was even bewildered at the turn of events. And Mary did what you and I would do she went to find her leaders and the rest of her friends. Can you imagine what was going through her mind as she ran back up that trail? She was, she was in this overwhelming grief before she experienced the shock of her life. And she came to Simon Peter and John and she blurted out, Someone has taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. Again, I say... As you view these events, ask yourself, how would you respond? Look at John 20, verse 3. Let me ask you, would you be disconcerted? Would you be disconcerted? Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and were going to the tomb. The shock had left Mary bewildered. 
In Luke 24, 11, Luke adds that the women were in such a state of shock that their words appeared as nonsense. So they weren't believing them. It literally says, Luke tells us that they weren't believing them because they appeared as nonsense. Therefore, Peter and the other disciple, who was John, started out toward the tomb. And there was no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter got up first to check things out. That's how Peter is. And then John followed him out, so they were running together. And look at your text in verse 4. They were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. But so so John, so John was the younger man, and so he ran faster. Again, we see the humanity of this. I, see the, I want you to see the humanity. They heard the news and, and they, they heard the women's emotional report, so they ran to check it out. You know, this, this story rings so authentic because you, you can see it happen in our mind's eye. You can see them come in and you can see Peter get up with John and you can see John outrun Peter to the, to the grave. Can you imagine their feelings as they ran down the trail to the grave? Look at your... Text in verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. You see, John arrived at the tomb first, and he stooped and he looked in. And he saw the linen wrappings there, and, and he, didn't, he, he didn't go in, uh, because uh, only, one can only assume that he was being cautious. Look at verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. This, is, this absolutely fits Peter's personality, does it not? Peter didn't hesitate to enter the... He, I mean, he came straight there and he went straight in. Didn't even hesitate to enter the tomb. Didn't even cross his mind to kind of look and make sure there's no danger. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty cautious to enter the tomb with a dead body. But not Peter. He barged right on in and he saw the linen wrappings there. Look at your text in verse 7. The face cloth, which has been on his head, not, not lying with the linen wrappings, but had been folded up by it in a place by itself. What he saw when he entered the tomb was nothing short of amazing. He saw the same linen wrappings that were used that earlier that week before to wrap, before the Sabbath, to wrap the battered and bloody body of Jesus. But now instead of wrapping the body of Jesus, they were lying there undisturbed as if the air had been let out of them. Literally flat. As if the air had been let out. The body was gone. And amazingly, he saw the face cloth which had been on his face neatly laid to the side. Neatly rolled up by itself. In a place by itself. You know, if you might be reminded of the story of Lazarus in John eleven forty three, Jesus raised Lazarus. And you may recall from your reading that Lazarus came forth from the grave wearing his grave clothes, including his face wrappings. Because Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. But in this case, Jesus had a glorified body that simply passed through the grave clothes and left them lying there as they were. There was no reason to unbind him because he simply passed through the bindings. The way the items were left indicates there was no struggle. There was no 
hurried unwrapping of the body by grave robbers, which one would imagine would be a messy endeavor with all the spices. The grave robbers wouldn't have even taken the time to, to, un, to take the, the clothes off, grave clothes off, because, because they would have, have feared getting caught. In the words of John MacArthur, since transporting the body elsewhere would be easier and more pleasant if it was left in its wrapped and spiced condition, uh, clearly they would have taken those grave clothes with them. And, and, and by the way, remember, the grave was being guarded. The, those guards had been placed there by the chief priests and, and the Pharisees, so it wouldn't make any sense that anyone could have stolen the body. I mean, that, if you think about the grave, if you think about the wrappings and the way that they were laid out, it would have taken a lot of time to do that. It would have been impossible to do it the way it was done, but you get the point. The only ones who could have stolen the body had every reason for that bloody body to still be laying there on that morning, but it was not. There was every indication that the body had, been, had moved through the cloth and had left the grave behind, had left those wrappings behind in their undisturbed position. And Peter must have been, he must have been disconcerted when he saw the grave clothes lying there. He must have, that it must have been nothing short of taking his breath away to see the, body, the Lord's body gone and to see uh, the wrappings completely undisturbed. Look back at your text. Again, as I, I say to you, as you view these events through the disciples' eyes, ask yourself, how would you respond? Look at verse 7. Would you be confident? Would you be confident? Look at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and he believed. John tells us that he came to the tomb first, but was second to enter. When he entered he, and saw the empty tomb along with the grave clothes lying there, he believed. You see, John had every confidence that Jesus had risen from the dead just as he had promised. And as time went on, more and, and as more and more was revealed, the other disciples came to faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord because they found Jesus to be alive. You see, they saw His resurrected body, but John says that He came to faith because of the empty tomb and the grave clothes. But He then adds in verse 9, I, I, think, that it, I think this is basically saying His faith was fragile at that moment because he, it wasn't founded on, some, on the understanding of Scripture. Because he says in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. You see, John, I think, believed that Jesus had risen from the dead based on what he had seen, based on his eyes and based on his eyewitness account, but he had not put it all together yet. He, hadn't, he didn't completely understand it. As for Peter's faith, John doesn't specifically say whether he believed or he disbelieved, but we can assume by his subsequent actions that his faith didn't come until later. Luke tells us that Peter stood up and ran to the tomb. After running to the tomb, after stooping to look in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away by himself, marveling at what had happened. 
the Net Bible says he wondered. He was wondering what happened. In other words, Peter wasn't quite certain what had happened, but he wondered in his mind what had taken place. You see, Peter and the other disciples hadn't fully understood Psalm 16.10. Later on the day of Pentecost, Peter did fully understand, and he stood and he boldly proclaimed the truth that, that for you will not forsake uh, the Lord's soul, the, uh, this is speaking from the Lord's point of view, you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. He, he came and understood uh, by the time of the day of Pentecost, he understood, he was confident that Christ had been risen from, had risen from the dead and raised up again from the grave. But John's clear confidence, his simple belief, which began that day, the day he saw the empty tomb, that confidence, that belief would engulf the rest of the disciples and it would eventually set the world, uh, set fire to the world uh, as they hear the gospel that the Lord, uh, that the grave couldn't hold him, that death no longer had sting. See, the, God, the, the apostles would take the gospel to the rest of the world. And most of them would die for their faith, for their confidence that Christ had, in fact, risen from the grave. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead The resurrection is a fact better attested than any event recorded in any history, whether ancient or modern, end quote. The resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit emboldened these men to preach the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Church, we need to have the same confidence displayed by John and eventually by Peter and the rest of Jesus' disciples. Just like them, we can have clear confidence that that body no longer lies in that grave. That body no longer lies anywhere because that body is now sitting uh, alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. And you can say amen to that. He's been raised up and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Look at your text in verse John 20, verse 10. So the disciples went away again to where they were staying. On that particular day, the disciples all went back to where they were staying. No doubt the missing body was their only topic of conversation, but there was one who stayed behind. There was one who stayed behind. You remember Mary? Mary Magdalene? You see, she was still grieving her Lord. She had none of the confidence that John had gained. She wasn't processing things like Peter was. Again, I say, as you view these events through the disciples' eyes, ask yourself, how would you respond? How would I respond? Look at John 20, verse 11. I ask you, would you be despairing? But Mary was standing outside the grave or outside the tomb crying. And so she was, as she was crying, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Just think about it. The rest of the disciples had gone away, yet Mary, always devoted to her Lord, is still standing outside the tomb. She is weeping bitterly. Now just imagine in your mind's eye, 
she's weeping and she stoops and she looks in the tomb, into the tomb. And you see, Mary didn't have John's confidence. Mary didn't have Peter's amazement or wonder. She was in absolute despair. She didn't understand what happened. Look, at, look back at your text. <clears throat> she saw two angels in white sitting. One at the head and one at the feet where the body of Christ had been lying. Again, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, just for a moment, she's crying. She probably is having difficulty seeing with all the tears. Have you ever cried that hard, so hard that you can't even see? But then through the tears, she saw the angels. I'm sure she wondered at that moment what she was seeing. But they asked her, and I I love this. Look, Look at the text in verse 13. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? And she still doesn't understand. So she answers, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know, I do not know where they've laid Him. Her deep, incredibly deep devotion to Christ, to the Lord, is obvious. Her devotion... Truly, her devotion has caused false teacher to, teachers to accuse her of ungodly things. But I love the authenticity of Scripture. If this account were not inspired by the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't know any of this. Think about that. We wouldn't know any of it. We would just see the, the actions of, a, of the men. Mary knows that she owes her life to Jesus. He freed her from her bondage to sin and to the demons and she's willing to give her life and devotion to him her despair is very real it is very deep Uh, she doesn't know it yet but he has given his life for her and has risen in victory darkest before the dawn her great despair will become exhilaration within just a few moments again i ask yourself View these things through the disciples' eyes. As you view them through the disciples' eyes, would, how would you respond? How would I respond? Look at verse 14. Uh, would you be captivated? Would you be captivated? We can't be sure why Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first glance. Look at verse 14. When she said this, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there and did not know that it was Jesus. I mean, it could have been the tears. It could have been still the, the morning light. It could have been that he looked different in some way. We, we saw that. We see that in Luke 24 as well. It was probably, it probably that she was, he was, she was startled by his presence. He now had a glorified body. The last time she saw him, he had just come off the cross and was being wrapped. Laid in the tomb. Look back at verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Jesus knew who she was seeking. She, he knew the despair in her heart. He knew every, every emotion that she was feeling at that very moment. And John tells, her, tells, tells us that she thought he was the gardener. Now, I believe that this is a distant echo back to another garden with another woman. Her name was Eve. 
You may recall God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You may also recall that it was Eve who ate from the tree, then her husband ate. And that those actions, uh, their actions plunged mankind in, into death, sin, and darkness. And that Adam's action in, in, in following his wife in that way, has sin uh, plunged mankind into sin, the, the fall of man. Well, as dawn appeared on that garden tomb, Jesus announced to Mary that He had defeated that old foe. He had, in fact, Genesis 3.15, He had crushed the head of the serpent. What an incredible mercy that the Lord would appear to a woman and announce the greatest news we could ever hear. In the words of the Apostle Paul, sin and death had entered the world through one man and spread to all men, yet the grace of God abounds because of what Jesus accomplished with His death and resurrection. And Mary Magdalene was the first to hear the news from the mouth of our Lord. It's incredible. Again, we see the authenticity of Scripture. In that day, they considered a woman's testimony to be worthless. Women were not allowed to serve as witnesses in court. If, if the early believers wanted to fabricate the resurrection, they would have come up with male witnesses, which they had male witnesses, but they wouldn't have even considered the, the women. And yet, that's what we have here in Scripture. Back at your Bibles in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbi, Rabbi, which means teacher. At the sound of Jesus' voice, Mary's despair instantly turned to inexpressible joy. Her dramatic devotion was even more on display. She was captivated by the sight of Jesus. Again, I ask you, as you view these events through, Jesus, through the disciples' eyes, ask yourself, how would I respond? Look at verse 17. Would you be devoted? Jesus said to her, stop clinging to Me. And after recognizing her Lord, she embraced Him as if she would never let Him go. Jesus' words testify in a very unique way the extraordinary character of Mary Magdalene. She was completely unlike Thomas. She wasn't, I mean, he was hesitant, pessimistic. And Jesus urged Thomas to touch him in order to, in order to verify his identity. That's just a little later in John 20. On the other hand, Mary simply would not let him go. She understood what he meant to her. Again, if not for him, Mary would still be dead in her sins. She knew that. She knew that, that she would be walking uh, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. Uh, the Spirit is now working in sons' dis disobedience. Now, she, she graphically understood that. I mean, her understanding couldn't have been complete at that point, but her devotion was full. She understood she understood who had freed her from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of those demons, and she was fully devoted to her to him. Do you recognize do you recognize as well in your life that, that Jesus has removed you from bondage? 
Your situation may not seem as dire as Mary. You may think you have your life all together. Or you may, you may have thought that before you became a believer. If you're not a believer, you may think that today. Either way, whether you understood it or not, you were formerly walking according to the course of this world. Your king was Satan. And you conducted yourself in the lust of your flesh. You were, in fact, a child of wrath. And if you don't know him today, that's where you stand today. Whether you believe it or not. But Paul tells us what happened with Mary in Ephesians 2, and with every believer who becomes a believer. Ephesians 2.4, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, as for Mary, she may not have fully understood what Jesus had accomplished on our behalf by rising from the dead. She, could, she wouldn't have understood all of those things. But I can tell you what I think she did understand. That she was a child of wrath. She understood that. Jesus had saved her. And He was alive even though she saw Him die on the cross. She understood that. And she saw, saw Him. She saw them lying, laying Him in the grave. She saw that. Look back at your text. Verse 17. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to, my, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. So, Jesus instructed Mary Magdalene to tell the news that He had risen from the dead to the other disciples. Therefore, John tells us that Mary Magdalene, verse 18, came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had done that he had said these things to her see mary went to tell the disciples the best news they could ever hear jesus her lord and our lord had risen from the dead he had died on the cross bearing the weight of our sins his father was pleased to crush him putting him to grief you know, there's a simple children's song that we used to sing, listen to, that is, in my home. I think I listened to it more than my kids, but when they were young, I think it does a, a great job of giving the gospel in just a few short words. It says, holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, He took my sin. By His death, I live again. Friend, by His death, you can live again. Because He lives. Because He lives. I will give you the answer to this by the chorus of another children's song we used to listen to. I've alluded to it already. This is the best news we could ever hear. More than amazing 
It drives out every fear. By trusting in Jesus Christ, in His saving sacrifice, we can be made new. We can be made new. Beloved, we can be made new. We have been made new if you are in Christ because Jesus has risen. Say it with me. He is risen indeed. In the words of Charles Wesley, Christ the Lord is risen today and we can sing together, hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again for Your goodness to us and Your mercy toward us. Father, we thank You for the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, Without the Lord being raised from the dead, the cross would have meant nothing. It would just have been another Roman crucifixion forgotten. But because of the power of the resurrection and the fact that the Lord Jesus defeated sin and death, Father, we can be made new. We can be made new. In Christ's name, amen.